89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning. Good morning. It's the second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor, and on the Internet all around this wet world, WERU.org. Boat Talk is a call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your rusty anchors mike joyce and alan sprague the call-in number i'll give it right now for anybody who is interested is 1-866-625-9378 and we're just going to sail right into a whole bunch of topics today mike what are you going to start with and we have a guest this morning we uh, do have a guest i should you're right I we should. have our friend ben emery in this morning ben has written a uh, book called uh Sailor for the Wild, and it's about uh, uh, on Maine conservation and boats. So we will uh, probably be uh, able to scrape up an hour's worth of conversation, but we like to start with a few news items first and have uh, told Ben that he is welcome to comment uh, as well on, uh, you know, whatever we're talking about. Some of it's uh, a little conservation-minded, too. Here's one of my favorites from the Bangor Daily News back in September, Teen's Balloon ban proposal gets pushback, and this is a uh, kid from uh, Will Jones from Kennebuck uh, High School Senior, and since he is 12 years old, he's been trying to get uh, uh, some some uh, means to protect marine life from balloons and trash in the ocean, and he is proposing in Kennebuck a mirror of a balloon ban adopted in Block Island, Rhode Island. Um, it's been called the slippery slope banning, uh, you know, uh, those uh, helium-filled balloons, and there's people that speak of uh, banning mass release of balloons, but you can't keep a balloon from a kid. And I have a pet peeve about these balloons. I never, I can't remember the last uh, boat delivery I've done uh, uh, offshore without seeing one of those things. Happened again this summer. And uh, literally about two weeks ago, I was up to the dollar store in Ellsworth, and a little girl in a fairy princess dress was uh, buying a, a handful of balloons. It was somebody's birthday. And they were all enthusiastic there. And I'm looking at those things going, where are they going to end up? And then she spoke about how much fun it was going to be to let them go. And I had to speak up. And I says, can I tell you something, dear? I says, I love your dress. But I'm a sailor. And I, I go up and down the ocean with boats. And I never go out in the ocean. I always see those balloons. So... When you let them go, it might end up in the ocean. And if you could maybe think about that and maybe not let it go out in the ocean. And her mother kind of looked at me, and it was okay. And uh, they left. And then somebody else in the store come up to me afterwards and says, thank you for saying that. <laughs> you know? So good for uh, Will uh, Jones of Kennebunk uh, High School. Uh, like I say, going to be a hard uh, the, job. 
Those uh, balloons are particularly nasty for turtles because when they're semi-deflated, they mimic somewhat a jellyfish in the water, which is a, a favorite food for turtles. They find uh, quite a few uh, balloons inside of dead turtles that they've done autopsies on. Yeah. Here's a, uh, don't know what to call this uh, a little story, but it, it comes with its own uh, uh, joke line. Uh, before going into the pot, lobsters get some pot. And an MDI restaurant owner, Charlotte uh, Gill, has Charlotte's legendary lobster pound down in Seawall, Southwest Harbor. And she was concerned about uh, being cruel, boiling lobsters to death. And uh, her idea was to put the lobster in a cardboard box and infuse the cardboard box with marijuana smoke. And uh, this become quite a national story for a little bit last September. It, it made the Rush Limbaugh show, among other things. <laughs> And I guess what it come down to is Charlotte later uh, uh, allowed how she hadn't actually served any customers marijuana and in, uh, in, in uh, fluence lobsters. Uh, it was just a uh, kindness thing, and uh, we're not going to get further into that. But, uh, again, characters, uh, you know, who we'll put Charlotte over here with Will from Kennebuck High School. Ah. Uh, Here's a uh, not a great one uh, panel to assess the fate of the 2019 shrimp season. And uh, basically, the uh, survey has showed that there are no shrimp or shrimp babies out there. And uh, this is in the Gulf of Maine. Now, we've spoken of this before on Boat Talk, and we have to think of the special geography of the Gulf of Maine. If you look at it on a map, it looks like it's a big open uh, bite that is open to the ocean but geologically it is uh, has a big mountain in the mouth of it called uh, uh, George's Bank and uh, the Great South Channel is the way in and out of the Gulf of Maine if you looked at it and could see through the water think of the Gulf of Maine as a big uh, milk pitcher and the Great South Channel is the spigot uh, overflow that is pointing south there and the Gulf of Maine is a big bowl it has an indigenous shrimp population. The Gulf of Maine uh, uh, shrimp are tasty little things. There's nothing like them on earth. Them big uh, things you get in the stores from Louisiana, call them shrimp, okay, but... Well, they're oil-infused from yeah. Louisiana. Uh, point being, there is another uh, shrimp population, the, the uh, North Atlantic shrimp population. The Gulf of Maine shrimp population has been fished out. Uh, we used to catch, uh, what, 11,000, uh, no, 111,000 tons a year, and... Uh, back in 2013, they only found 250 tons to catch. It ain't there anymore. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that the North Atlantic uh, shrimp stock will not enter the Gulf of Maine. It will not go up over the rim of the pitcher into, into the pitcher bowl, um, as what the scientists are finding. So they've done a survey this year looking to find young, young uh, shrimp or any shrimp whatsoever, and they haven't found them. The fishermen are beside themselves. They said, you didn't look in the right place. You didn't look deep enough. We can find them. Let us catch them, please. And uh, so they're arguing right now uh, very vociferously against, uh, you know, whether those shrimp are there or not. And the fishermen don't believe the scientists. And the scientists are saying, you know. Well, if they're that hard to find, it's certainly not a good sign, is it? You would think. And, and the fishermen's point being that they didn't trawl deep enough. Uh, scientists say we can, it's not that we well, couldn't. Well, with uh, warming you know. water, it may be colder down there, so it's yeah. possible. 
Uh, here's Cherry Moore News from the Bangor Daily News uh, last September. Uh, lobster exports to China fell uh, 64% in July. Most of the lobsters being exported to the China uh, now are from Maine. And uh, this is in response to the uh, Great Leader's 25% uh, retaliatory tariff. Um, the China lobster market was coming on pretty hard, and we'll have to see what happens to that. Speaking of lobsters, here's a, uh, a fellow in Booth Bay, Mark Jones, has uh, twice within two weeks of each other in different locations caught seahorses in his lobster traps. Um, we don't have seahorses down here. Uh, they're not supposed to be much north of Cape Cod. Um, but, again, the water is warming. Things are changing. You know? Somebody's going to find a market for them pretty soon. <laughs> well, and, again, uh, you know, the idea that we could uh, get a seahorse market would be, but, no, uh, we're not thinking that. And can we back up to the stoned lobsters? Uh, the question is, uh, if we're going to stone those lobsters, uh, here's here's the bad joke, um, before we boil them, um, is it okay to get the lobsters baked before they're boiled? <laughs> That's half-baked. Yeah. I'm sorry, you know, had to throw that in. So anyway, we are doing boat talk this morning. We'll get to talk to Ben Emery in just a minute about his new book, but there's one other one that uh, just blew me away last week. is uh, Gwyn Dyer, he's the uh, editorialist, is a Newfoundlander, Based in London, he's the editorialist in the uh, Bangor Daily News on Tuesdays. And last Tuesday's editorial, I read part of it on, on uh, the Barefoot Blues Hour last Wednesday um, about uh, intelligent life in our galaxy. And uh, the question being, will our civilization survive? Uh, this thing called the Drake Equation was written in 1960 to estimate how many high-tech civilizations there might be in the galaxy. Back in 1960, all the stuff they were talking about, they had no idea. But now we know most of the factors of the equation. Uh, how many planets uh, are, are uh, how many stars are made new, how many stars have planets that uh, have water and could have life, those things. Um, what we don't know is how many planets uh, that can support life do and then have higher uh, life on them. But, as he says here, make your assumptions uh, about first life, and then intelligence emerging on any given planet as pessimistic as you like, and there will still be a lot, maybe not billions or even millions. But if you assume that only one life-supporting planet and a million trillion ever support a civilization, there's still 10,000 of them just in the Milky Way. And the question is, how many of these civilizations get to what uh, the astronomers also predict is a bottleneck of energy use versus uh, pollution and the idea that civilizations all use large amounts of energy and there's strictly limited number of ways that a technologically young civilization can access energy. you got fossil fuels. If your planet had a carboniferous, carboniferous age or maybe you're just burning biomass if it didn't, you got hydro, wind, tides, the solar, geothermal, and nuclear, and that's it. Using energy always produces waste, but some of these modes produce far less heat and carbon dioxide and toxic chemicals than others. So, put different original mixes of these energy sources into your experimental models and different planetary conditions as well, and run these a few thousand times through your computer. Turns out that the models see 
Uh, runaway population growth followed at a distance by growing pressures on the planet's environment that lowers the carrying capacity. At some point, the alarm population switches to lower impact energy sources, and there's still a steep dieback up to about 70%. Then a steady state emerges and civilization survives. In other models, the planet's people or creatures or beings, whatever they might be, delay switching energy sources for too long, and they all switch in the end, but the laggards, they don't make it. Population still starts to fail and then appears to stabilize and then rushes downwards to extinction. Nobody saw that model coming, but it's what it's telling us. There's still a large amount of research to be done, but it's time to ask where our own planetary civilization falls on this spectrum. Oh, this just in. Oil production is at an all-time high of 100 million barrels a day and climbing. Um, as Gwyn Dyer points out, that's in the wrong direction. Amy Goodman this morning spoke of the new UN report. Uh, the panel announced that we have a decade to address climate change or it's going to be too late. Cake's already being baked right now. And uh, let's think. The Trump EPA just acknowledged that climate change is real. Will lead to a, uh, uh, they spoke of seven degrees uh, uh, temperature raised by the end of the century, but it's useless to do anything about it, so we're actually going to lower emission standards on cars and make some money. Uh, because uh, it's just useless to try hard. So, um, again, possibly going in the right or wrong direction here. Will our civilization survive? Mm. Yeah. And we got to just uh, keep up the global warming narrative. Watch the news. See the floods, the fires, the uh, the hurricanes, you know. Um, man, it's running the planet now and, and coming. Well, yeah. Change things slightly, though, thinking of conservation of energy. Um, I like sailboats as opposed to powerboats are uh, kind of a good lifestyle thing to think about. And But I've been taking, speaking with some uh, boat builder friends lately, and they seem to be all in agreement that sailboats and sailing in general seem to be on a decline as opposed to powerboats which um, I'm not sure if I'm happy about that tendency, but Ben may have a comment, too. It seems like not so many people, especially young people, are getting sailboats as opposed to powerboats lately. Well, I even comment on this on my book, but I have a lot of yacht broker friends and been owned a bunch of boats over the years and bought and sold them, and I've been being told for, oh, God, 10 years that the uh, – interest in owning sailboats, particularly cruising-type sailboats, has been declining, and that the buyers are mostly older. And I'll tell you, uh, probably, I bet it's seven or eight years ago, uh, John Knowles of East Coast Yacht Sales told me that, and he loves sail. he's a great sailor, and he said basically all his sailboat buyers were 55 years and older. And I, I think a few days later, I was at a Morris Yachts event, and the woman who was then marketing manager, I repeated that to her. And she said, well, we've done some analysis, and all our buyers are 65 and older, and that means in 10 years we don't have a market. So, yes, I mean, I don't think there's any question the sailboat market is terrible. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a, a, a bad comment. But so, anyway, we do have a phone call. Let's go to Captain Yo. Good morning, Captain Yo. Good morning. Listening to these programs on environmental subjects, a paradox becomes apparent to me. We admit that our civilization 
is the source of all this ilth, but yet we want civilization to survive. That seems paradoxical to me. Thank you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone. Wait a minute. Why wouldn't we just... Community radio. Yo, why, why wouldn't uh, we just assume anything wants to survive? Yeah, of course. I uh, don't understand paradoxical, uh, you know, the urge to survive. It's not the urge to survive. It's the urge to perpetuate civilization, survival of civilization. If civilization creates all this ilth, why would we want it to survive? Why do we all want more better stuff all the time? That's just baked into the cake, too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. but, yeah, the word better is the, is the term here, and it isn't. It isn't. It's balloons in the ocean. That ain't better. That's what I mean by ill. We love the idea of unintended consequences on boat talk, you know. Well, that's true. Thanks yeah. again, and thank you to everyone. Thank you, yo. one 625 is the number into the studio. Now, back to uh, power boats and sailboats. I uh, deliver boats, you know, uh, quite a bit. And one thing that surprises people when I uh, tell them or when they get to come is, uh, and we do mostly sailboats, but we do love a good power boat with a couch behind the steering wheel and a TV instead of, you know, the ocean. Um, we don't don't dislike that at all. But um, what surprises people is that um, in the sailboat, the engine's mostly on. Engine on a delivery is on almost all the time. On deliveries, yes. And, so, and often when we're uh, sailing for pleasure, the engine, uh, you know, uh, a uh, sailboat without an engine, I'm telling you what, uh, ain't many of them around, yeah. so... Uh, sailboats are, are power boats too, and again, the engines get used more than mm. most people think. Uh, so. Yeah, it depends on the sailor. You uh, remember Hugh Herman? Yes. The yeah. his pilot. He, I don't think he ever ran his engine. He'd sail off the morning. He could even sail up to the float. He was a true good sailor. Well, so much depends on the characteristics of the boat too. True. In yeah. terms of particularly here in Maine, where we have relatively light air in the summer, and I think lighter air than we used to years ago, which may be climate issue, uh, a boat that can perform in light air makes all the difference in the world and keeps the engine off a lot more. If you practice sailing on and off moorings and floats, you will uh, no doubt uh, get better at it than if you only try it once out of uh, desperation, you know, which is, uh, again, most people uh, don't use these skills. I I try to dial phone numbers instead of push the redial button. That's the only way. I, I remember numbers well all my life, but I notice I don't much anymore. You know, you got to use stuff. Well, there's yeah. more numbers to remember for everybody now, too. Um I was going to talk about the uh, lack of sailors, I guess. Um, there's a lot of schools up and down the coast, I'm thinking high school age right now, that are offering sailing courses. They certainly do have the opportunity to learn how to sail. I wonder why it is that people are still going towards the power boats. It's also seen as kind of elitist. I have a card that says barefoot boat delivery. I pass it off to people and uh, you know, so they can contact me, but... Always make the joke now when you need your boat taken, your yacht taken somewhere, and it produces the same reaction every time. Yacht? I don't have a yacht. I'm, you know, I'm a regular person. <laughs> and it is seen as kind of elitist, too, in uh, some ways. Uh, but, uh, again, um, world's mostly water. There's more coming. Good to be boat people. Mm. Pretty sure about that. 
You know, one comment I was going to make based on what Alan just said about young people and sailing, uh, Phil Bennett from the Hinckley Company came down on the dock, oh, I don't know, three, four months ago, and was chatting with me on the same issue about people not sailing much. And, and uh, he was blaming a lot of the lack of interest in sailing, including with kids, on modern families being so programmed in the summer. You've got children being scheduled into one camp, you know, lacrosse camp, music camp, what computer camp, whatever, they just don't have time to settle into sailboats. They, maybe they take a sailing course in an opti or something, but then they're off to music camp, and the families are so busy with most people working, two, uh, mother and father working jobs, that uh, if they get a boat at all, they want they can't use it a lot, and they need they want something that goes fast, and right. and so it's a powerboat. So the kids aren't ra- being raised with with uh, parents who who sail. Yeah. You've got to have a farm system. Where do the new golfers come from, new football players, new sailors, you know? So so we get to the boat talk question. Ben Emery, what happened to you? You grew up to be a sailor. Well, I was lucky enough to uh, – I, I grew up actually – I'm really originally – I call myself a transplant. I lived here all my adult life, but I grew up summers in Maine. I wasn't here in the winter. But I was lucky enough to grow up in Brooklyn, Maine. And uh, I grew up in small boats on Agamagan Reach. And my father loved sailing, and so he took me sailing from the time I was tiny. And uh, I fortunately just took to it. And uh, it had totally it probably didn't affect my life totally in good ways because I probably <laughs> made decisions to make sure I could sail when I should have been doing something else. But, um, no, it's strictly from growing up as a child on Agamagan Reach and having access to uh, – Little boat, little cat boats that were called brutal beasts, and uh, then to the Harrishoff twelve and a halfs that were over there, and and later I moved on to had the opportunity to sail on bigger boats. Was it always a happy place with Dad on the boat? Was Dad a, uh, knew how to handle the boat? And uh... yeah, I Dad, yes, he was a wonderful person to be on a boat with. By the time I was a teenager, and my started working uh, as boat as boat boy in the summer and then I started as crew on ocean racing yachts and I got out of Maine and I you know did Bermuda races and Halifax races and sailed on some really pretty great boats with some great sailors and one of the interesting thing was and I was still a teenager and my father by then had a 35 foot cruising boat in New Bedford 35 designed by uh, Sam Crocker and uh, it wasn't too long as a teenager before Dad realized I really knew more than he did, and he respected that and liked the fact that I was learning all that. Nice, so it was a yeah. good. It was a good. Uh, we had a really good time, and and uh, I just spent endless. He he went out, you know, every day, and I went with him, and we just enjoyed the sailing and the aesthetics and looking at the eiders and so forth. Nice. Uh, and again, to have a dad whose happy place is a boat, how lucky was you, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and going out with him, too, sort of reflects back onto the uh, the older times when uh, schedules weren't quite so tight, where you didn't really need a powerboat because you had to make it back by 5 o'clock oh. to get you know, the sort of thing. It's a, it's a sad comment on today's environment that so many people have seen to be so schedule-bound. The secret will always be true, though. It will always be a beautiful thing to, you know, get blown about by the wind. So, yeah. so uh, all these experiences have led up to uh, writing your book. Let's just talk a little bit about your book entitled Sailor for the Wild. Well, I realized I read a British book uh, by a British 
author called Robert McFarlane, a journey on foot. And he made the point that people are shaped by their landscapes. And the light bulb went on for me. And I realized, boy, had I been shaped by the main coastal landscape. Mm. And my sailing led to, including cruising by the time I was, I really started cruising the main coast about the time I was 12. Uh, and then I worked on boats that cruised the coast, and I sailed, cruised the coast with my father and so forth. Um, I learned about the geography of the coast. I learned about the nature of the coast. I learned about the people of the coast. And it really got me very interested in the beauty of the coast. And it led me to being, becoming very interested in coastal conservation. And uh, sailing led me into the Navy. I was a destroyer officer for three years. I uh, came out of the Navy, and I was on the original staff at Maine Coast Heritage Trust, which, uh, which then had its headquarters in, uh, on Mount Desert Island. And I had the opportunity to work at conserving this coast that I love so much. And the sailing I had done during my school and college years had, had also introduced me to a lot of people up and down the East Coast. And those contacts I'd made through sailing were very helpful. In the early day, the original days of Maine Coast Heritage Trust, we were focused on preserving the islands. And it was very, those contacts were very helpful in reaching out to island owners and working with them to conserve the natural qualities of their islands. Well, so that at, at the time, there were not very many uh, conservation organizations like the Coast Heritage Trust at all. So it must have been a kind of a, a teaching experience for, for you to... When uh, did Maine Coast Heritage Trust come along? Maine Coast Heritage Trust was founded in 1970. I, the original oh, staff, long, the original staff wow. came on yeah. in 19... Elmer Beale from Southwest Harbor was the first executive director in January of 1971. I joined him in July of 1971. Uh, Nature Conservancy started acquiring Maine Islands in, in 1963, and the state already had a few, and Acadia National Park had a few... Uh, but Maine Coast Heritage Trust, working with Acadia National Park, was promoting conservation easements, a technique where the land remains privately owned, but the landowner puts permanent restrictions on development of a property, and Acadia National Park was the first agency in Maine to start accepting these easements. So, And that's a piece of national conservation history. The, I don't know, this, I don't want to go too far away from boat talk, but... But uh, uh, the Acadia National Park Conservation Easement, as negotiated by and promoted by Maine Coast Heritage Trust, lit a spark around the United States in terms of using that conservation technique. And that's one of the reasons, one of the things I really wanted to do with this book was record some conservation history that has not been recorded before. Hmm. 1970, that's Conservation Pioneer Days. Well, you know, Acadia National Park was founded a long time before that, and the, the Hancock County Trustees of Reservations was before the park and led to the park. So it goes back, um, we're over 100 years into this around here now. Yeah, but still the conservation yeah. movement as we know it today is, is fairly modern. And that was the 1970, you will remember, April was the first Earth Day. Yeah. And that was a, I'm a little older than you guys, but that was a big deal. Too cool. That's yeah. great. Uh, why don't you uh, read a selection from your book just to give us a little well, you sample? Well, you know, I, if you want me to just quickly pick something, I, uh, I, I'll give you the flavor for how I kind of weave together the boats and the conservation. Uh, and I actually have a, a 
some of you may, possible some of your listeners might think this sounds vaguely familiar. I, I do a little writing for Maine Boats and Harbors magazine, and in the current issue, I have an article on brutal beasts, and that's a little bit of an elaboration of some of this. But anyway, quickly, uh, I'll give you two paragraphs if we have time here. Uh, my best memories of childhood are of crowding just as much sailing as possible into joyous summer days. I was always the child in the harbor who sailed by far the most, going out virtually every morning and afternoon, wind and weather permitting. My sailing began in Brutal Beasts, a class of small wooden centerboard catboats, one sail only, that seemed over the hill even in my youngest days. They had been brought to Brooklyn and nearby Blue Hill at some point before my time after being nearly worn out in their original home waters of Marblehead, Massachusetts. Now I'm going to skip a paragraph and go on to another one. The shallow V-shape of a brutal beast bottom meant that with centerboard raised and rudder removed, it was easy to land on a beach. Just a short sail across sheltered waters from Center Harbor are two islands joined at low tide by a long sweeping sandbar. Often on sunny days, a fleet of brutal beasts carrying family and friends would rendezvous on this sandbar for memorable picnics, swimming in the bracingly cold water, exploring the island shores, and searching in the shallows for sand dollars kept his children well entertained while adults prepared the sandwiches. The picnics on those and neighboring islands played a major role in developing my love for Maine Islands, an enthusiasm that later led directly to professional land conservation work following my immediate post-college years as a destroyer officer. Like you say, informed by the landscape, and um, it's uh, quite quite something to get the family to the beach, but to sail the family to an anchorage, mm-hmm. and then uh, your relationship with some, some place you've actually been and spent the night is, you know, uh, more intense than a place you've uh, just thought about, you know, and... Um, Again, uh, you can't get there without a boat. Um, what a beautiful thing that your whole family, or the whole family, was in the little cat boat at the time. It's a pretty small boat. Well, uh, no, I mean it was typically uh, there was a whole fleet of brutal beasts in Brooklyn, and and it, typically it was both kids and adults, but. You know, we might put three or four people in a brutal beast. Yeah, uh, four I mean, would be a full load. I huh? had the one that I mean I. I had three older sisters, but they were quite a lot older, so it was kind of like I was an only child in that sense, and I was the sailor of the brutal beast, so I might have a friend or two friends or maybe my dad or mother or whatever, but, or maybe they went in a bigger boat. Yeah. And but so what, we got the people to the island one way or another. There were plenty of boats. Around. Yeah. So when you have that many people on board, you, you have what we call a human ballast, right? So you're, when, when you're sailing along and you change course, you have everybody shift over to the other side of the boat, so it's... Well, to some extent, it depends how hard it was blowing. Oh, yeah, but all right. A, yeah. Brutal, a brutal beast actually would carry four people. The cockpits are pretty big. They'd carry four people okay. Without having to shift sides. Yeah. And under, under normal conditions. Mo- mo- moderate summer yeah. afternoon conditions. It is boat talk this morning. We're about halfway through it. The idea of a brutal, brutal beast doesn't have uh, red uh, eyes and uh, fangs and, and uh, you know, uh, not dangerous to you uh, as, as uh, the idea might might say we are doing boat talks morning we got ben emery in as a guest he's written a book called sailor for the wild about uh conservation the coast of maine and boats uh you can give us a call about any time yep one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. i do have our email open too if you'd like to email rather than call you can do that by just going to boat talk 
at gmail.com. Yeah, email Alan and I opened a computer one time on Boat Talk, and I ain't never going to try it again. I can't do two <laughs> things like that at once, but Alan can. So, uh, uh, Ben Emery, I uh, interviewed a um, musician a little while ago, and, and uh, he was a musician um, uh, decades back, and I, the question was... Um, uh, what's the difference in the music business uh, now and then? And he says it's easier to make music but harder to sell it. Now, you've made your own book. It's easier to make a book nowadays, isn't it? But it's still quite a process to build a book, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is. And I, all I knew how to do was sit at a computer and type. Uh, and I, You're you know, a writer, so you've got material. Yeah, I had some of them. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've been writing for quite a long time. But that I, doesn't, material doesn't just make a but, book but now, does it? But the team, I mean, there really is a team. And my publisher, Seapoint uh, Books of Brooklyn, uh, some of you may know Spencer Smith and Queenie Foster, who know a lot of people in the boat world, uh, they're Seapoint Books. My editor was Jane Crozen from Penobscot, who The is map lady. map lady, but... Yeah. but a really superb editor and yes, my indexer, is. and she. I have met some maps in the book, and she and Barbara Tedesco from Surrey uh, worked on the maps, and I think did a wonderful job. Takes a book designer, had a woman from Gloucester, Massachusetts, who just was terrific, and named Claire McMaster. And then Seapoint uh, has the Seapoint Books has their books published in China, and they operate to very high standards and uh the pub i mean the printer uh, i don't even know what the name of the printer is but the printer really produced a beautifully printed book so it's a real team effort and i and then there's a distributor and i mean the and there's the bookstores and there's you know the online i mean amazon and barnes and noble and all that i mean there's a lot of people involved uh uh hell of a process and again just having the material is not not uh not a not a book by any, any no any stretch right there um, you've been uh, literally writing for years on conservation, though. Uh, pretty much, and written a, and writing a bit for boats. I actually started writing on boats uh, during the. I might comment. I have a chapter in the book on this, but we we were just talking about Earth Day. I got out of the Navy just before. I mean, a few months before Earth Day, and I had a year because of the time I got out of the Navy, where I I sort of trying to figure out what to do. And I did a cruise up the East Coast encouraging boating organizations. My, my first wife was, was deceased, but my first wife, Judy, and I did a cruise up the East Coast in a little international 500-yaw, 31-foot wooden boat built in Germany, designed by Bob Henry, calling on boating organizations from Florida to Maine, encouraging them to get more in, involved in coastal conservation issues. And... Uh, that's where I started my writing, really, because I wrote that up for Yachting Magazine, and a, which was a different kind of magazine in those days. It's less focused on huge, fancy yachts than it is today, I think, uh, and, uh, and, and some other publications. And uh, we got a lot of publicity on that cruise because of Earth Day. I mean, it was just we hit the timing right. Hmm. It's also my chance. I learned a lot about the environmental problems in 1970 up and down the East Coast. Were you seeing much plast plastic in the water then? Uh, nothing like today, nothing I like don't today. think. Uh, but er and every area had its uh, concerns. I, I mean, Florida was filling the mangrove swamps. Here in Maine in those times, as uh, you and I were talking earlier about river, I mean, the rivers were a lot worse condition then than they are today here in Maine. And uh, that was a big issue. That's what people were talking about, the Androscoggin particularly. I mean, terrible. Mm -hmm. 30 years ago, I remember how disgusting Long Island Sound was. Oh, yeah. You know? 
I mean, trash, uh, hypodermic needles, uh, picnic mm. tables floating by upside down, uh, and again, it's cleaned itself up. You know, I'll tell you an anecdote about uh, Long Island Sound that I actually mentioned in my book, uh, in that article, in that chapter about this coastal cruise in 1970. I, one of the people I went to call on in his New York City office was the commodore of one of the major, uh, major Long Island Sound yacht clubs. And he was an elderly man. I was kind of in awe of him because he was also, I'd never met him before, but I'd probably raced against him and crewing on boats. He was a very well-known, successful ocean racer, and I, I held him in very high regard. And he was sort of a crusty old man by the time I got to meet him. And here I was encouraging his yacht club, and I won't mention the name, to uh, get more engaged in cleaning up this mess in Long Island Sound. And he, I, I think I remember his words exactly. He said... I'm glad somebody's calling halt, but don't expect me to carry the cudgel. And I took that really negatively. Now I'm kind of, now I'm his, probably the age he was then, mm. and I kind of understand it more, and I gave him a little more leeway on saying that. But that business about, yeah, somebody's got to stop it, but I'm not going to. Or, or you know, I don't can't I don't know what he meant, but it's just don't don't expect me to carry the cudgel. Really just, shocked me. Just spoke of the EPA uh, admitting that global warming is a fact. The temperature range is probably, probably going to be dangerous, but I can't do nothing. I ain't got a stick yeah. I can I hit it with. So you know, don't bother yeah. me. Yeah, one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. I'll break into the uh, the pollution thing with a little bit of good news. Um, there is an organization called Ocean Cleanup who are in the right now de, the process of deploying a uh, I don't know exactly what to call it it's a a, a Roombot. Uh, it's a yeah. uh, it's a robot va vacuum cleaner correct yeah, a floating one yeah no it's a uh, it's a semicircular array that uh, somehow is a, I must be wind powered but moves through the water and as it moves through the water has a little net that hangs down about a meter down below it to catch plastic and it's headed towards the Pacific plastic garbage patch right now on its way to be deployed. Um, the It's going to take a while to get there. It only goes three knots while it's being towed through the water, but then when they set it up and deploy it, it's supposed to uh, collect garbage for the next five years. Um, they, If it works well, they're going to try to make 60 more of them and deploy those, and they're saying that after the 60 are deployed, uh, after five years, the garbage patch will be reduced by half. Just reading Neil deGrasse Tyson, a uh, book about astrophysics and uh, war, basically, and he points out the difficulty of the uh, satellite sphere has a lot of junk particles floating around, and they need to be vacuumed up, too. Mm -hmm. But guess what? You can't get them all, no matter what you do. And smaller. he analogized that to the Pacific garbage patch is exactly what he did. And, yeah. Well, um, anybody who is interested in this, you can go to the website. It's simply theoceancleanup.com, all one word. Now, I've, I've uh, been literally been delivering boats up and down the East Coast for 30 years, and in 30 years I have noticed that the water is changing. Partly that's observation of gear, and boats that used to be there aren't there anymore. But uh, over your lifetime, fair to say, uh, water of the coast of Maine is changing? Well, not necessarily visually, but what's in it, as we've brought up in a couple different ways, whether it's uh, lack of fish or changing species or whether it's pollution like plastics, uh, 
and obviously the things we can't see, the acidity has changed, the temperature has changed. Uh, one thing this summer, and I don't know, I've asked a couple people about this, uh, and I don't know whether there's anything changing. Uh, long fin squid, about which I know nothing, huh. uh, are, I guess, have been on the main coast all along. And I read somewhere recently that they one reason we don't see them is that they, in the daytime, they are down on the bottom. This summer, uh, in the daytime, we saw a lot of long fin squid. I mean, on multiple occasions. Huh. And also, I saw them at night over at Winter Harbor one night. But then these were big schools and breaking the surface. And hmm. I don't know whether I was. I mean, I don't. I have no idea whether that indicates some kind of change. But all the years I've spent. Now we do a lot of paddle boarding. And my wife. I say we. My wife and I. We do a lot of paddle boarding, stand up paddle boarding, and that's a great way to because you're you know you're five or six feet off the water, so you can see down. It's almost like snorkeling. We do a lot of snorkeling too, but. Uh, but so maybe we see better because we're on paddle boards and we do a lot of rowing, but it's harder to see out of a rowboat. Yeah. I don't know. But the long fin squid thing re really intrigues me as why were we seeing them so much this year? First thing I want to know is who eats them. <laughs> I don't know. Actually, yeah. they're probably pretty good. We yeah. yeah. Um, we have a phone call. So let's, uh, let's go to Ann in Brooklyn. Good morning. Welcome to Hi, Boat Talk. I'm in Rockland. Rockland. Oh, yep, sorry. Yeah. I listen to you um, streaming on the web. And I appreciate the show. I just wanted to remind listeners that today is the last day to make a comment to the Board of Environmental Protection. Uh, and the and there's a, a proposal before the legislature um, to to protect 400 miles of rivers and streams. And if you go to the uh, natural resources what are they called the um nrcm uh at nrcm.org you can um send in a comment if you want this 400 miles protected i don't know if i'm, I'm trying to explain this in short language um but today is the last day to make a comment that will the board will listen to okay so it's the nrcm.org or com. Yeah, or org. Okay, yeah. National Resource Council of Maine. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they have a button you can push for taking action. And yeah. if you look at the. <laughs> oh, Ann, if it was only that easy, huh? Come on now. Yeah, I know. Only life was so easy. Um, they have a paragraph about action. They're proposing to clean up rivers and streams. As I understand it, the way this was explained to me, um, the rivers and streams have like an ABC rating or something like that, you know, and C rating being that it's very polluted, B being that it's pretty protected, you know, and corporate power groups are encouraging the legislature to rate this 400 miles of rivers and streams as the C poor rating. Because that allows them to uh, discharge effluent into rivers and streams. If it's a, if it's a low rating, they can continue discharging into it. Hmm. Industrial um, use is what built this country. That's right. You know, them damn dams, uh, them beautiful power mills, uh, you know. Um, yeah. But. Yeah. But. And, um, but. 
what were you going to say? Well, that is just it right there, but, and it's empty after that. Cause, uh, dot, you know, dot, dot. Because now, now we're here, and uh, we, yeah, can, we can do things differently. You know, we can do things differently now. As, uh, so yeah. one of the things we can do is, as Ann says, is go to our computer and at least make a comment. Yeah, at least let them know what you think about this, you know. So uh, thank you for your show, and I'll sign off. Okay. Bye. Thank you very much, Ann. Thank you, man. Yeah. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. It's a it's a good thing to do a little bit more than just uh, complain. You know, we got no button for you to push. We got nothing you can kick or hit, but you can uh, talk about it. So uh, boat talk, uh, you know, like I say, is uh, interactive at uh, at the best. So please give us a call one eight six six nine two five. Uh, uh, six t- I'm sorry. one 625 Which is the same as W-E-R-U, so there. Uh, ben Emery, uh, what kind of boat uh, you got nowadays, Ben? Well, my, we have a cruising boat that's a Fingal 391 uh, designed by a Swedish uh, naval architect called Hakan Sodergren, uh, built in Finland. And... Uh, it uh, it was built in 1995. It's a modern fin keel spade rudder. Little uh, uh, Euro. Little little, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm a traditionalist. I uh, uh, complain about people that build uh, houses from away on the main coast or, and the Euro styling. I'm, I'm not a big fan of uh, some of the, uh, the Euro uh, sailboats, you know. I wouldn't call this what I would. I wouldn't apply. I would call this very Scandinavian in style. I wouldn't. I, I think. I think of Euro as maybe. I think more of the French. I don't know. I yeah. don't think of Euro as this. And and this is actually that. a very attractive looking boat. Uh, but and it really, it really sails. I, I, I've had. I've had everything in the way of boats, and I just sold a marvelous boat that I, a twenty-one foot uh, restored. I didn't have it restored, but I bought it after it been restored. A Harishoff Fish Class Slope, which is sort of the big sister to a Harishoff 12 and a half. It's basically the same design. And I owned that for about five seasons, and, and Brooklyn Boatyard did a wonderful job of keeping her as pristine as she was when she arrived. And that was like owning a museum piece and a wonderful sailing boat. Uh, I finally uh, got... I, I didn't really... I just had too many boats, and I had my t- good time with her. She was also most too pristine uh, in the sense that I didn't want to take my grandkids on island picnics and have their sandy feet aboard or we might get on the varnish and every, all that. every time you stop you must have people come on over and, and want to talk about the boat well it was and actually when we brought her here on her trailer in 2014 uh, ben menlowitz uh, wouldn't uh, wouldn't you know, boat wouldn't photographer, photographer. Uh, my wife sailing the boat was the cover photo in the 2016 uh, wooden boat calendar and it was the august uh, photo that year i mean ben just had a terrific off-center harbor and this is worth watching for people who love boats offcenterharbor.com uh puts up all these wonderful videos and the video that celebrated was their celebration of the 250th video on offcenterharbor.com was a video they did of us with this boat. Steve Stone, the videographer, and Ben Menlowitz uh, did the photography. But if you're interested in traditional boats, and particularly Harishaw, I mean, that video is phenomenal. The name of the boat's Perch. If you go to offcenterharbor.com and just search on Perch, P-E-R-C-H, you'll come up with a video. 
I uh, apologize if I seem to cast any aspersions on the beauty of your, your Scandinavian <laughs> boat. I more have a little uh, prejudice against swans and stuff, yeah. you know. Um, but you said something else that scared me a little bit. Uh, fin keel and spade rudder, you said, right? I've had both over the years. Uh, I grew up in full keel boats. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, I, uh, I, you know, could go either way. As I get older, you know, I'm 73. I have thought about having a boat that's a little tamer than this Fingo 391, and that might be going back to a full keel. But basically, in, I'll tell you, there's a bunch of, apart from performance, uh, I mean, the boats are just plain more fun to sail. They have to be steered more. But this boat is, and this isn't true of all fin keel spade rudder boats, but this boat is very good, knock on wood, at shedding lobster trap lines. That's the point I was uh, getting if, at. If, if, if the re what makes That's it where work? I was going. What it's probably the best boat I've ever had at shedding it, and it's one wow. reason never to give up the boat. There's adequate slope to the leading edge of the keel, and the keel's deep, and it pushes that line deep. And I think what happens is that the line doesn't rise. The if the boat's got any speed at all, the line will the boat will have cleared the line by the time it gets high enough to either hook on the sail drive propeller or, or on the rudder. In very light air, with the boat going very slowly, um, yes, we've, we occasionally hook them, but almost always, and I can't really explain this, but almost always with this shape underbody, uh, by jibing the boat around maybe more than once, we'll clear it. I mean, I carry a wetsuit. But I have rarely had to use it. And so again, we're too old to jump under the boat. <laughs> well, I do. I I still jump under the boat, but I, uh, I uh, no, I. I mean, that is not a reason. I mean, it depends on this. It depends on the shape of the keel and probably yeah. the shape of the rudder. Mm -hmm. and That's so forth. just where I was going. Lobster traps. Now, just to define terms for people that uh, like boat talk but don't know nothing about boats, a uh, full keel boat. Let's imagine that the. Um, the entire bottom of the boat's uh, one molded piece. It uh, starts at the front, it gets deeper as it goes to the back, and, and in somewhere back there there's a hole with a propeller in it. The rudder is attached to. Um, what we're talking about with a fin keel and a spade rudder is now we have more or less a boat that's a uh, U-shaped uh, dish with a fin hanging down in the middle for the keel and another one back aft for the rudder. Those protuberances that hang down can grab stuff uh, like lobster traps, and I call a lot of, again, uh, fin keel boats uh, lobster uh, trap grabbers, you know. And some of them are, for and sure. And some of them are for bad. And, and, again, I have a prejudice against them for on the coast of Maine. Mm -hmm. I've always thought uh, the only thing that makes sense is a full keel boat. But so There's you, another, a, another comment. Uh, as harbors have gotten more crowded and moorings closer together, the fin keel boats... They're much more maneuverable. I mean, you can turn them tighter, and you can also, in reverse, you can steer them in reverse and kind of know where you're going. A full keel boat kind of has a mind. It's a hopeful of, It has a mind of its own Back in reverse. So in a art, crowded yeah. harbor, and I've, we've done a lot of cruising in the Caribbean and marinas and stuff like that down there in the southeast United States, and, and in tight quarters, uh, either a fin keel spade rudder or a fin keel skeg rudder boat, Good point. Uh, it is a lot easier to handle and safer under those conditions. Yeah, good point. And again, it's a trade -off. the, the uh, particular ge uh, geometry of the uh, leading edge of this or it makes all the difference, too. Mm -hmm. Some of them, are, again, are, uh, you've got some full-keel boats that are trap catchers, mm -hmm. too. So, 
Yeah, but not a good thing on the coast of Maine. And again, at our age, I, I like to make the point I work on the water, not in, in the water. <laughs> you know, on a good day, but ultimately I'm the guy that goes overboard or to the top of the mast still at my age. So, you know. Well, another boat that you had that you haven't mentioned, but one of my favorites, uh, the ones that I know you've had, it was uh, a B-40. One of my favorite classes of boats, too. And this is the other end of the spectrum, too. Uh, definitely a full keel boat, a Hinkley Bermuda 40. Egamagen was the name of it, right? Yeah, I actually, yeah. just last fall, I sold Egamagen way back in, in 1981. And that's a story in itself. But just last fall, I wrote an article for Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors uh, about my nostalgia for that very boat. And when I mentioned, I thought, you know, if I get too old for a boat quite as quick as, as uh, the one I have right now, uh, I might go back to a Bermuda 40. It's yeah. got a cockpit that's very easy to move around in. The boat steers itself more steadily than, than what the kind of boat I sail nowadays. Uh, the, they very well, were very solidly built by Hinkley. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I'm a fan. I remain a fan of Bermuda 40 and if I can can I have another couple seconds I'll tell you that this particular Bermuda 40 I had and that was probably the third owner uh, she gave great pleasure to two people who had severe handicaps mm. uh, I bought her from a guy who had crashed his airplane and lost an arm I mean he was literally a single-hander <laughs> and he loved that boat, and he didn't sell it immediately. It was pretty well along in years. He was a wonderful gentleman. And I, she was surveyed at Hinkley when I bought her, and the Hinkley crew, I wasn't there that day, the Hinkley crew told me that when he left the boat, well, maybe I, I guess I was there for the survey, but I wasn't there when he left her. And he, they said he was in tears. I've but seen I that. I sold her to a guy who's my age, uh, and about 10 years after he bought her, he was badly paralyzed in a car accident mm -hmm. and he moved about to california he put a roller furling sloop rig in her he put a hoist on the back to hoist him aboard where the mizzen mast went through he had a gimbal chair made where they strapped him in and he could steer could sit back there yeah. and he said he as of i've been in contact with him as recently as probably two months ago and he and he's had a health problem uh for the last year and he hasn't used the boat and i don't know if he's going to be able to but up until a year ago he was sailing that boat about 150 days a year on monterey bay and they get big seas and high winds and he has sent me so that boat since 1981 that boat has given huge pleasure to this guy some boats have good karma and are just good good happy no. places and egg Morgan, i think uh possibly qualifies in that regard now, Bermuda 40, a uh, uh, classic designed by Bill Tripp. The Hinkley Company built 200 of them and then destroyed the mold for some reason. Um, the reason I'm sitting here this morning is because of a uh, Hinkley Bermuda 40. When I was a kid, the neighbors had a sailboat, and uh, what a great thing to be chosen for uh, one of the kids got to go sailing, you know. And then they sold it and got a stupid powerboat and just broke my heart. But uh, along the same time, a wooden lightning come along for $100. It was a mess. And I remember filling it with water in the barn, and, and we lay under it, watched the water come out, and we never made it stop leaking. We kept it at Cousins Island, uh, Casco Bay. We rode our bikes about eight miles and had to swim out to it. And if we didn't go every other day, it would sink. So we spent a lot of time in that boat. 
And uh, one day we're in the handy boat in Falmouth, uh, uh, Maine, and on the dock next to us is a Bermuda 40 with a couple. And they are just amazed by the boat full of boys. And we're like, oh, my God, it's a Rolls Royce. It's a Hinkley ILO. And they have us aboard for lunch. And they give us peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwiches. I've never had one since. <laughs> I never forgot it. Okay. <laughs> Sounds memorable. Yes. And, uh, you know, off we went. I went to college in Nova Scotia. I was stolen by hippies at the radio station my third year. I was an illegal alien for a while. And when I had to come back to Maine, I'd, I didn't know where to go, what to do. Saw an ad in the paper for the Hinkley Company. Remembered that peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwich. You know, and I'm sitting here this morning. So... Yeah, uh, I'll tell you something, Ben. You may have known this, but when you uh, used to keep Egamagan and Bass Harbor Marine many years ago, when I worked there, um, it was a was it a charter boat? No, 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 okay. it never was. But, yeah, but we had quite a few uh, Hinkleys there of various sorts, and as, as uh, probably a lot of boat yards are inclined to do, we changed the names of lots of boats in our own little thing, and you you owned Egamuffin. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard that. Oh, yeah. No, okay. Well, and, yeah. and endearing, uh, yes, yeah. a term of endearment. Yeah. No it doubt was. about it. Um, tell us about the book, uh, Ben. You were uh, uh, you didn't bring us copies because you're hard-pressed to have enough of them right now. It's got great reviews. It's uh, People are reading it, correct? How do, how do we get a hold of it? Well, the, the books are available uh, through bookstores, uh, through through uh, Amazon and Barnes & Noble and so forth. I if a bookstore doesn't have it, they can certainly order it. I encourage people to use their favorite bookstores, whether the bookstore has it in stock or not. But I also realize I buy a lot of books from Amazon, and it's awful easy just to hit that button, and you have the book a couple days later. So Amazon. And some gift shops, uh, Brooklyn, Maine, uh, Leaf and Anna is the name of a store, and right next to the Brooklyn General Store belongs to Ann uh, Dentino. And uh, she's been really supportive this summer of uh, carrying it. Sherman, Sherman's, of course, has multiple bookstores in Maine, and I know in Bar Harbor they've done a wonderful job of displaying it. So it's it's readily available. Ben Emery, sailor uh, for the wild on Maine, conservation and boats. Uh, just in general, Ben, again, we commented on the climate change before. It's a lovely thing to be uh, uh, conserving things now, but everything is fundamentally changing at the same time in the bigger scope, you know, the big zoom out. It is, and uh, who knows what's ahead. I, I'm discouraged for my... I have five grandsons, and I'm, to be honest with you, relatively discouraged. Got to still travel, hopefully, and and uh, there's no point in just sitting and watching. Yeah. Exactly, uh, exactly. That's Ben Emery, folks, here on Boat Talk. Thanks to Amy Brown down in the engine room. Stay tuned for Johnny Too Bad coming up with On the Wing next on WERU-FM Blue Hill 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor and all around the world at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Gamble & Hunter Sailmakers, making sales for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main